They're now finding people from Yemen, Iran, Turkey. People on the, on the terrorist watch list they are catching. And they're rushing it all at once. Really? Terrorists are rushing the border all at once? I don't know why I came here tonight. I don't know. I got the feeling that something right. Sounds suspicious. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. <laughs> and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Of course, they wouldn't make things up, right? Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove on KSO and in Eugene on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around, swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of your friendly neighborhood broadcast. Glad to have you back. I am looking ahead at today's show, Desi Doyen. Yeah. And yes, even your Green News report a bit later. It seems like we've got quite a bit of cleanup on aisle 45 news today. <laughs> Sadly, yes, that is true. <laughs> Well, sadly and happily, I'm glad to well, yeah, some of it is good. begin the cleanup, or at least start it. But it's sad that it has to be cleaned up at all, but correct, that's where we correct. are. Correct. Yeah, and uh, particularly uh, clean up on aisle 45 news at the border, which we will get to with my guest in a bit. But in a few uh, somewhat smaller, less noticed, a bit more out of the way, clean up on aisle 45 news items to start out today with. The FBI is now facing new scrutiny and not a moment too soon, in my opinion, for its 2018 background check of Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice now, after lawmaker uh, one lawmaker suggested that the investigation may have been, quote, fake. Oh, do you think? Rhode Island Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a former prosecutor who serves on the Judiciary Committee, is calling on President Biden's newly confirmed Attorney General Merrick Garland to help facilitate, quote, Proper oversight by the Senate into questions about how thoroughly the FBI investigated Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearing. A, uh-oh, and B, well, thank God it's about time, isn't it? Yes, Remember definitely. that? Remember that investigation that we were all waiting for? We're going to wait to hear what the FBI has to say, and then we can start the confirmation. 
You'll recall the Supreme Court justice was accused of sexual assault by uh, Christine Blasey Ford and faced several other allegations of misconduct following Ford's harrowing testimony back in September of 2018 that the entire world, or at least the entire country, was glued to at the time regarding alleged assault uh, when, when she and Kavanaugh were in high school. Kavanaugh denied her claims and many others before his confirmation was then rammed through by Republicans after they unilaterally ended the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, which kind of, you know, seems kind of like a pretty big thing when we're discussing the need of late to kill the legislative filibuster. I mean, if Republicans were more than willing to kill the Supreme Court nomination filibuster, kill it for lifetime appointees to the highest court in the land for justices who will decide on their own with, with no way to appeal what laws may stand, what laws must be struck down, not to mention decisions on life and death concerning people who the government will kill with the Supreme Court's okay well, it, it doesn't seem all that radical to me to kill the legislative filibuster now that the Supreme Court filibuster has been killed without much of a peep, particularly when there is still a Supreme Court who could determine whether legislation passed by Congress without a Senate filibuster would be allowed to be enacted at all. A Supreme Court chosen without the right for the minority to filibuster its lifetime appointments. It sounds like you're accusing Republicans of hypocrisy. Yes, I am. What but, a shock. But I digress. Uh, I didn't mean to. I was supposed to be talking about the FBI and their phony investigation of Kavanaugh. Anyway, the FBI was called to investigate the allegations of sexual assault against then-Judge Kavanaugh during the Senate confirmation process but was later accused by some Democratic senators of conducting an incomplete background check. For example, two key witnesses, Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh, were never actually interviewed as part of that FBI inquiry. Remember that? Oh, yes. Among the concerns listed in White House's letter to Merrick Garland... Attorney General Merrick Garland now are allegations that some witnesses who wanted to share their accounts with the FBI could not find anyone at the bureau who would accept their testimony and that it had not assigned any individual to accept or gather evidence. White House says in his letter, quote, this was unique behavior in my experience as the bureau is usually amenable to information and evidence. But in this matter, he says the shutters were closed, the drawbridge drawn up, and there was no point of entry by which members of the public or Congress could provide information to the FBI. I feel as if we've uh, we noted uh, some of that at the time when covering that phony FBI investigation that Republicans in the Trump administration had you know tried to placate Democrats with, but it was a joke. They weren't looking at real information. They cut off real information that was coming to them. And I am glad now that White House has not forgotten about it. 
And I suspect Merrick Garland, by the way, who has a bit of experience regarding horseplay by Republicans to steal and then pack the Supreme Court, I'm hoping that he may also have some interest in looking into some of these questions. White House added that once the FBI decided to create a tip line, senators were not given any information on how or whether new allegations were processed and evaluated and whether they were processed or evaluated at all. While senators' brief review of the allegations gathered by the tip line showed a, quote, stack of information had come in, apparently there was no further explanation on the steps that had been taken to review that stack of information, if there even was any such review, White House suggests. He says this tip line appeared to have operated more like a garbage chute, with everything that came down the chute consigned without review to the figurative dumpster. He was also critical of uh, Chris Ray, who Joe Biden has elected to remain in place for the moment, for not answering, he was critical of him for not answering questions about the investigation at the time. While it is unclear, the Guardian reports today whether the FBI would reopen an investigation itself into Kavanaugh, who is now one of nine justices on the GOP's stolen and packed Supreme Court. The letter could, in fact, push Garland to force the DOJ, at least, to respond to questions about the investigation into Kavanaugh. White House said he is seeking answers about, quote, how, why, and at whose behest the FBI conducted a, quote, fake investigation, and if standard procedures were violated, including standards for following allegations gathered through the FBI tip lines. There are a couple of troubling issues with Kavanaugh's background, so I hope that this DOJ review helps to uncover what happened in that investigation uh, yeah. of the background check. There are more than just a couple. Uh, over at Esquire today, Charlie Pierce picks up on this news, and he adds a bit more of those troubling questions, uh, uh, You know, just in case this request for reinvestigation of, of some of these points somehow takes place under Merrick Garland. Pierce says that while the allegations regarding Christine Blasey Ford were grim and awful, White House also had his teeth, Sheldon White House also had his teeth into what always has been what Pierce describes as the hinkiest part of that whole episode, namely how Kavanaugh's substantial personal indebtedness was settled up just before he was confirmed. He writes, of course, this is of a piece with White House's uh, own campaign to expose to daylight the money that fuels the right wing judicial assembly line. In fact, during the confirmation process, White House sent Kavanaugh 14 pages of follow up questions regarding his finances. Pierce goes on to quote Mother Jones reportage at the time. Noting other questions from White House addressed Kavanaugh's unusual debt history. Remember this? Not long after Trump nominated him, the Washington Post reported 
that since joining the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals as a judge in 2006, Kavanaugh had run up significant amount of debt that often appeared to exceed the value of his cash and investment assets. His debts on three credit cards, as well as a loan against his retirement account, totaled between sixty dollars and $200,000 in 2016 according to his financial disclosure forms. But the next year, those debts all vanished. When he appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee for his confirmation hearing, his financial disclosure form listed no liabilities whatsoever aside from his home mortgage. What happened to that sixty dollars to $200,000 in debt that suddenly went away in like a year's magic. time? Yeah. Uh, his disclosures didn't show any large financial gifts outside of his income as a, uh, a, a circuit court of appeals judge or even a gambling windfall as Sotomayor's had, apparently, when she hit the jackpot at a Florida casino in 2008 and won $8,283. <laughs> did you know that? No. I did not weird. know that. I Funny. did not know that. But she at least declared it. She declared it, so we know that, yeah, well, it's probably, uh, she's probably not indebted to that slot machine, but who exactly is Brett Kavanaugh indebted to that wiped out overnight between sixty and $200,000 worth of debt? So, yeah, keep pressing, Senator Whitehouse, and thank you very much for your long memory. Uh, and here's another cleanup on aisle 45 story that may jog your memory back to uh, Donald Trump's first impeachment, uh, which ended, by the way, just over a year ago. Really? Yeah. Are you sure it wasn't 10 yeah. years ago? I know. It was not that long. It seems like another lifetime at this point, but it was just over a year ago. Uh, here's the item. Army Lieutenant Colonel Yevgeny Vindman the twin brother to the better-known first impeachment witness, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, is set for a promotion to colonel after surmounting alleged efforts by the Trump administration to retaliate against his family over his brother's testimony during the first impeachment hearings against disgraced former President Trump. Yevgeny said in a statement, quote, I am deeply grateful for the trust and confidence to the uh, U.S. Army and the Judge Advocate General or JAG Corps have placed in me with selection for promotion to colonel. On the Biden administration's decision to promote him after last year, Trump political appointees had tried to smear him. Uh, with damaging performance reviews because he happened to be the brother of Alexander. Yevgeny said they stood their ground despite intense pressure during the last administration. Yevgeny served as deputy legal advisor for the National Security Council staff in the Trump White House. The negative performance reviews came after his brother, a top Ukraine expert at the National Security Council, testified before the House Intelligence Committee about Trump's now infamous phone call in July of 2019 to the Ukrainian president. In a whistleblower complaint to the Defense Department's inspector general, Yevgeny declared that the bad performance reviews he received were efforts to seek revenge against him 
after his brother delivered testimony about a Trump call to Vladimir Zelensky to dig up dirt on then-presidential candidate Joe Biden's son and to announce an investigation into him. The pressure campaign ultimately led to Trump's first impeachment. Yevgeny's uh, Trump-appointed superiors uh, included the then-senior associate uh, White House counsel and the deputy White House counsel. They actually urged, those two anyway, urged that the Army promote him to colonel without delay. Despite that, other political operatives in the Trump White House apparently urged the opposite, uh, leading to the uh, whistleblower complaint from Yevgeny. Uh, in his uh, Tuesday statement, he said he was hopeful as he anticipated the completion of the Pentagon's IG report into his allegations of retaliation, Trump booted both of the Vindman brothers in a post-impeachment purge rage against those who offered testimony against him during his first impeachment. In a Tuesday tweet celebrating the promotion, Yevgeny urged a bill be sponsored to decorate his brother, who retired amid ongoing retaliation efforts in the wake of his testimony last year. So uh, Alexander Vindman never got his um, promotion his promotion to that Colonel. he deserved. Yeah. So, uh, yes, what a mess, this uh, cleanup on aisle 45. I suspect it's going to take years to clean up this toxic stew with one of the biggest of Trump's messes being left, by the way, at our southern border, where right now Republicans are busy transferring that mess, or at least trying to, over to Joe Biden. The truth about that story, or at least as much as we can learn about it right now, while the GOP is out lying about it and getting their usual helping hand from our corporate media, that's next on the broadcast with Migration Policy Institute's uh, Sarah Pierce, here to hopefully help us understand what is and isn't going on at the border right now with a whole lot of news suddenly coming from there today and, and yesterday. Some for good reason, by the way. Others, well, like this from Kevin McCarthy, maybe not for such good reason. They're now finding people from Yemen, Iran, Turkey. People on the, on the terrorist watch list they are catching. And they're rushing it all at once. Oh, no. Terrorists from Yemen and Iran and Turkey are all rushing the southern border. Really? All at once? Well, that doesn't sound good. It also sounds suspiciously like a lie. But we will find out the truth, hopefully straight ahead, in what Fox News and Republicans are ingeniously branding now as Biden's border crisis. That is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. I'm sick and tired of hearing things truth that's all we're asking for welcome back to the bradcast brad friedman from bradblog.com it seems to have started this way about two weeks ago 
with a question from what I believe was a Fox News reporter, but frankly, it could have been anyone in the corporate media crew covering the White House these days in truth, as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki smartly parried this question about what, quote, a lot of Americans are saying. A lot of Americans are saying that, you know, the surges are happening under President Biden's watch after he reversed some previous policies. So does the administration take any accountability for what's happening? Who are the Americans? Well, I know you don't want to answer to him, but the former president just um, released a statement saying that uh, the Biden administration must act immediately to end the border nightmare that they have unleashed on our nation. Former President Trump? Yes. We don't take our advice or counsel from former President Trump on immigration policy, which was not only uh, inhumane, but ineffective. Over the last four years, we're going to chart our own path forward, and that includes treating children with humanity and respect and ensuring they're safe when they cross our borders. Ouch. Ooh, snap. Yeah, right? Good answer, Jen Psaki, to what a lot of Americans are saying about the border nightmare. When, in fact, those Americans are actually former President Donald Trump in a statement issued that same day and dutifully echoed by the corporate media in a White House press briefing as if it came from, quote, a lot of Americans. Well, two weeks later, a lot of Americans are suddenly concerned about the border, given that Republicans in Congress took the ball as teed up for them by Donald Trump. And for lack of any other accomplishments or direction or actual governing values in Congress or solutions to the problem that they wish to complain about, they have begun to run with it. With Fox News taking the lead at first, naturally, and branding whatever is now going on at the border as, quote, Biden's border crisis. That not even two months into his presidency. And as they are wont, the GOP is taking a new influx of immigrants at the border and turning that into a national security emergency. With House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy down at the border on Monday claiming without evidence, to my knowledge, that agents at the border are finding, quote, People on the terrorist watch list from Yemen, Iran, and Turkey who are rushing in all at once. In response, on Monday night, Arizona's Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego pushed back against the doomsday portrayal of the new arrivals at the U.S.-Mexico border. Weird, he tweeted Riley. As the chair of the Subcommittee on Intelligence and Special Operations and a border state member of Congress, I haven't heard about any of this. Gonna ask for a briefing, he said. Pretty sure McCarthy is either wrong or lying. Well, that's impossible to believe. <laughs> Republicans have uh, recently turned to fear-mongering about Biden's immigration policies after voting unanimously against his sweeping progressive COVID-19 relief package in both chambers last week, eager to distract from the fact that they had tried to kill that legislation, legislation that enjoyed widespread support among Americans in the polls, GOP lawmakers are busting out at the cultural grievance playbook now to try to find a point of attack, any point of attack, against the president. The GOP's usual hand-wringing over migrant caravans, therefore, has taken on a new flavor amid COVID-19. Now Republicans 
are expressing concern over super spreader caravans that despite largely downplaying the pandemic and ignoring health officials guidelines on masks and large gatherings for much of the past year. But even if it's not a super spreader caravan or terrorists from Yemen, Iran and Turkey, there is a growing problem at the border, according to Biden's own Homeland Security Advisor Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday. Mayorkas said that the U.S. is expected to reach the highest number of people apprehended at the U.S.-Mexican border in two decades. We are on pace to encounter more individuals on the southwest border than we have had in the last 20 years, said Mayorkas in a statement addressing what he described as a difficult situation at the border. He noted, quote, we are expelling most single adults and families. We are not expelling unaccompanied children. Our goal, he said, is a safe, legal and orderly immigration system that is based on our bedrock priorities to keep our borders secure address the plight of children as the law requires, and enable families to be together. As of Sunday, Customs and Border Protection was encountering 565 unaccompanied children crossing the border on average per day. 565. That, according to new data obtained by NBC News, that's up from an average of 313 children per day just last month. The surge has created a backlog in Border Patrol stations with over 4,200 children now in custody and almost 3,000 held longer than the 72-hour legal limit before they are supposed to be turned over for handling to the Department of Health and Human Services to be reunited, to be united with family members in the U.S. or a foster family. The new figures are a record high, topping last week when there were roughly 3,000 children in Border Patrol custody, 1,400 of whom were being held over the 72-hour limit. The president has now deployed FEMA to quickly build what are described as decompression centers in Dallas and Midland, Texas, to allow Health and Human Services, the agency equipped to care for children before they are placed with sponsors, to take more children out of Border Patrol custody. Mayorkas explained that the majority of people apprehended at the southwest border are single adults, and they are currently being expelled under the CDC's authority to manage the public health crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic. Single adults from Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras, quote, are swiftly expelled to Mexico, he said. Similarly, families apprehended at the border who came from Mexico or those other countries are also being expelled to Mexico. Mayorkas said the U.S. is encountering many children at the southwest border each day who are not accompanied by a parent or a legal guardian. Part of the problem, he says, is that HHS doesn't have the capacity to take in the current number of children that they're encountering. The system was gutted. Facilities were closed and they cruelly expelled young children into the hands of traffickers, Mayorkas said, uh, describing the previous administration and adding that the Biden administration has had to rebuild that system. Mayorkas said the U.S. is building new facilities to increase its capacity, working with Mexico to receive expelled families 
and developing a more formal refugee program. But the Biden administration has been caught unprepared and under-resourced, according to Nicole Verrier at Vox.com, as they struggle to fulfill the administration's commitment to treating migrants humanely as the number of children held in CPP custody has hit record highs. Administration officials have urged patience as they review the dysfunctional system under which migrants are currently processed at the border and dismantle former President Trump's complex web of policies that put asylum and other humanitarian protections out of reach for most people. For now, that means the vast majority of migrants are still being turned away. On Saturday, Mayorkas conceded that the CBP facility is, quote, no place for a child but that border agents are, quote, working around the clock in difficult circumstances to take care of children temporarily in our care. CBP officials are struggling to quickly transfer them to state licensed shelters for migrant children, which have to uh, drastically slash their capacity right now amid the pandemic. And so beds are now full. That has forced the administration to reopen temporary tent facilities in Texas, which are costly and not subject to the same level of oversight as permanent shelters. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said last week that the administration is continuing to prioritize humanity. That's a quote in processing unaccompanied children, but still, quote, working on putting in place policies that can address what we are seeing. Jessica Bolter, a policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, said over the weekend, quote, this isn't a new flow that we're just seeing because Biden is coming into office, citing the dramatic shift since 2014 in the kinds of migrants who are arriving at the southern border from primarily single adult Mexicans previously to families now and unaccompanied children from Central America's Northern Triangle. Bolter adds the U.S. government still has not figured out exactly how to manage this flow of families and children. And throughout the Trump administration, the government neglected to find a way to adjust U.S. border enforcement mechanisms in a way that protects their rights, but also exerts control over the system. So why is this happening now? How bad is the problem and what is or should be happening to handle it. Joining us now for perhaps some answers to those questions is Sarah Pierce of the aforementioned Migration Policy Institute, a nonpartisan independent think tank dedicated to analysis of U.S. and global immigration. Sarah is an immigration attorney and policy analyst for the U.S. Immigration Policy Program at the Institute, where her research expertise includes U.S. legal immigration, uh, processes, the employment-based immigration system, and unaccompanied child migrants. Well, all of that may come in handy today. Sarah Pierce, it's been a while. Welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so it, it is very difficult, in truth, trying to separate right now the spin from the reality of the situation uh, with, I believe, Republicans sort of taking advantage of this uh, sort of early fog of war, if you will, media 
amplifying sometimes real, sometimes trumped up concerns and an administration not even two months in who is both trying to figure out and deal with the problem, even while trying to defend themselves. So first, I'm hoping you can clear up a lot here for us, Sarah. Is there a crisis at the border? And if so, is it beyond whatever crisis that we've had at the border for the past four or even eight years? I think there is a significant challenge at the southern border. I don't think we can call it yet a crisis, but we could certainly be moving in the direction of a crisis. So we had a really fast acceleration in the number of unaccompanied child migrants arriving at the southern border between January and February, but we still haven't re reached record numbers mm -hmm. of children arriving at the southern border. We saw records during 2019 and 2014 that we haven't yet broken. Um, but our facilities are limited because of the pandemic. And so that's making what would already be a challenge even more difficult as the administration scrambles to bring beds back online and move children out of Border Patrol custody as quickly as they possibly can. And some of that, if I understand correctly, is because while they're still turning away families and uh, uh, single adults, the Biden administration has sort of reversed the policy from the Trump administration and is taking in unaccompanied children instead of sending them away or sending them back to Mexico. So now they have to put them someplace, and the some places that they have to put them in, they can put fewer in because of social distancing requirements now? Right. So the, the Trump administration was actually restricted by a federal court from applying the expulsions to unaccompanied children. So the, the U.S. federal government has been accepting unaccompanied child migrants since November, mm -hmm. which means that the Trump administration had plenty of time to predict that, that unaccompanied children numbers would increase and unfortunately did not spend that time preparing for this, this inflow. Hmm. So the, the Biden administration has had to scramble quite quickly to, to deal with these increasing numbers, which I think grew even faster than, than any of us expected. And for good measure here, Sarah Pierce, are you aware of terrorists from Iran or Turkey or Yemen who are somehow being allowed in through the border as GOP House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy claimed at the border on Monday. As far as I know, the, the number of migrants who have appeared or, or appear on terrorist watch lists at the southern border have consistently been a very, very small percentage, less than one percent of apprehensions. And uh, how about so-called super spreader caravans? Is that a legitimate concern? No. So as you rightly said, the, the majority of migrants who are being apprehended at the southern border are being expelled. The children who are being permitted into the country are being tested and quarantined before they're placed at longer-term HHS facilities and certainly before they're released to sponsors in the country. So uh, and, and they are required to do this, uh, or at least as I understand it, the Biden administration uh, is still blocking families and adults under Title 42. That's the section of the Public Health Service Act that allows U.S. government to temporarily block non-citizens from entering the U.S. when it's necessary in the interest of public health. Is is that still in the interest of public health, given how much higher, frankly, covid rates already are in this country? 
Right, that's that's really hard to say. I think we were very critical when the Trump administration issued this order from the director of the CDC because it seemed so insincere that that the it, it seemed very apparent that the Trump administration was using this public health guise as a way to completely seal off the southern border. Something that's happening under the Biden administration, which is at least a little more promising, even though they've kept this expulsion order in place, they are working to increase their capacity so they can eventually accept asylum seekers safely, mm-hmm. considering pandemic cautions. So, you know, as far as we know, this administration is sincere that they do intend to eventually accept asylum seekers starting at ports of entry and mm-hmm. then moving beyond that to the entirety of the southern border, that they haven't, to our knowledge, been able to do that yet. Is um, as as Republicans have been apparently suggesting, uh, was it a mistake for the Biden administration to not turn children away? They argue the Republicans do that uh, because of that. This has led to an influx of children coming up from the northern triangle in Central America. Is that uh, is there is there anything to that suggestion? There's no doubt that. By having a policy that in, in which we are accepting children, that's likely encouraging more children to come. And it, unfortunately, is probably also encouraging families to self-separate when they get to the southern border uh, because parents recognize that children might have a better chance going alone than, than staying together as a family unit. But I think there were a lot of good policy reasons for the Biden administration to make that decision. Certainly, expelling children back to Mexico without any services or or reception is, uh, you know, extremely problematic policy. In addition, it's very likely that even if they had started to expel children, when a federal court, um, you know, lifted a lower court injunction saying that they could start expelling children again, it's very likely that 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 action still would have been caught up under a different federal court. Uh, meaning their policy would have jumped back and forth, which is something we saw frequently during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And as we know from that history, does not add up to good southern border management. So I do think it was the right policy choice, even if it is encouraging more children to come to the southern border. Now, there was uh, quite a bit of pushback during the Trump administration, Sarah Pierce, that it was... It was actually the Obama administration that began separating kids from parents and holding them in cages, though my understanding was that kids held in the uh, uh, CBP facilities during the Obama administration were largely unaccompanied children, not unlike those we're seeing now, uh, folks who uh, kids who showed up at the border and were held in those facilities as uh, sponsored housing was found for them elsewhere, whereas the Trump administration's decision to essentially detain adults who came here with children to detain the adults as criminals led them to then be separated from their kids, from the kids that they came with, who were then held in those cages. Is my understanding, is is that true? Can you help me understand the difference between the kids held by the Obama administration and those held under Trump? What Was there a difference in the way that was done? That is right. During the summer of 2018, the Trump administration had a policy of en masse separating children from their parents. We have never had a policy like that before in immigration, and I hope very much that we never will again. 
during the Trump administration, there were large influxes of children, both as part of family units and unaccompanied, and then separated children as well. Some of them were housed in really, really problematic conditions. CBT custody is just not designed to hold children for long periods of time, um, including the, the fencing that's been referred to as cages. But a lot of the images that came out during the Trump administration actually dated back to the Obama administration when resources were similarly overwhelmed by unaccompanied child migrants arriving at the southern border, and the children were again held in very questionable conditions in Border Patrol custody that frequently looked like cages. So even though children were not forcibly separated from their parents during the Obama administration, mm -hmm. like they were during President Trump, they were held in these, in these bad facilities, which, you know, raises the question, it's been, <laughs> I did math poorly in my head for a second, it's been actually seven years, not six, since the, that surge of unaccompanied child migrants during mm -hmm. the Obama administration, why are CBP facilities still so poorly equipped to handle um, these vulnerable populations? Man. It's a huge problem that we need to deal with. Yeah, and I guess that's my my next question here. Are these children, are, are, are these facilities still these same sort of deplorable conditions, these fences that look like cages with kids sleeping on floors under mylar blankets, et cetera. Is, is that happening even now, or at least has that much been cleaned up? We, have, we haven't yet started to see the images of children being held in CBP custody, but I highly suspect they are quite similar to the conditions we saw during 2019 mm. and during 2014. The reality is CBP facilities and really their processes and procedures are very well designed to, to handle the flows we saw in the early 2000s, where most individuals coming to our southern border were single adults trying to evade detection. Our, our, our infrastructure at the southern border is really well designed to deal with that flow. It's not really well designed to deal with these vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm very hopeful that this administration it will finally rectify that. Where uh, cross-border traffic for years had largely been Mexican men coming, you know, coming in for work. Why have we seen such a large, seen such large numbers in recent years of, of families uh, beginning, you know, as noted during the Obama administration, uh, coming up from the northern triangle of Central American countries like El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras? What has what has changed uh, to lead to that, Sarah? Quite a few different things. One of the biggest was uh, changes in Mexico. There were demographic changes. There were improvements in the education system in Mexico and in the economy that uh, decreased the push factors for Mexican nationals seeking jobs in the United States. The Great Recession in the United States was also a big turning point. After the Great Recession, you don't really see those um, illegal entries recovering um, part of the reason for that is the, the way the Great Recession changed jobs in the United States. We didn't have the same type of pull factors that we had previously. And then there are push factors in Central America that started to contribute to these vulnerable populations, making this very long and dangerous track from the Northern Triangle countries through Mexico to the U.S. southern border. There's also, finally, the fact that our asylum system in the United States is just really poorly equipped to handle these flows. When you apply you, for you, asylum... Um, you said, uh, you broke up a little bit, you said... Oh, sorry. Finally, our, our what? 
Uh, the U.S. asylum system oh, the asylum. is really yeah. poorly equipped to handle these large flows. Mm-hmm. So when you apply for asylum at the southern border, your application is placed into a very, very long backlog, a million, more than a million cases in this backlog, and you don't see a judge and have that case adjudicated for years. So that means the asylum system essentially is, is a way to enter the country and at least have temporary permission to stay here. It's a really poor part of our, our southern border management system and definitely creates a draw for individuals to come to the U.S. southern border. Well, I've saved the most difficult questions for last here, Sarah. Uh, wh- what now needs to be done and, uh, frankly, how much of it can be done without Congress passing anything, because unless Democrats get rid of the entire filibuster, I frankly see no way that Republicans will have any interest in actually fixing this problem, since I believe that they prefer it to be a problem, uh, frankly. Uh, so what needs to be done, as, as far as you see it, that can be done uh, without Congress? So in the short term, um, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the department that ultimately receives these unaccompanied child migrants, they need to increase their bed capacity, and that's something that they're working on. They're bringing beds back online that were offline because of the pandemic. They're also seeking out influx structures. The faster they can build up that bed capacity, the less amount of time children can spend in these insufficient conditions in CBP custody. In the longer term, The administration needs to change the way we adjudicate asylum so it no longer takes months, or excuse me, so it no longer takes years to adjudicate asylum claims, but rather only takes months. And that is something that this administration appears to be planning on doing. It will be a long process to change that. I do think that they can do it without the help of Congress, because I agree. I don't think that they're going to get a lot of help from Congress on this issue in the near term, at least. So we are just uh, not, as I noted, not even two months into the Biden presidency, uh, Sarah Pierce. Do you, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up this way, do you have reason to believe that, A, the Biden administration understands the problem, B, they have a real actual interest in uh, fixing it in a humane fashion, and C, that they actually have the ability to do so even if that means uh, doing so without help from Congress? I feel really confident about A and B, but not as much about C. Mm -hmm. I think they put a lot of really smart people into place who are trying to work as quickly as possible and seem to be pushing for the right goals. But they inherited a really, really big challenge in a system that was just really gutted by the prior administration. So whether or not they'll be able to do this all while also dealing with, you know, what what could very well be in the near future a crisis at the southern border is a really big question. So it, things could get worse there. Things could actually become the crisis that it sounds like uh, Republicans are currently pretending that it is or maybe even hoping that it is. Lots of challenges ahead. Sarah Pierce, policy analyst at Migration Policy Institute. You can find their work at migrationpolicy.org or on the Twitters at Migration Policy. You can find Sarah herself there on the Twitters. She is Sarah Pierce ESQ. Sarah, really appreciates joining us today. Thanks for the insight. And don't be surprised if we holler again in the near future. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. You bet. 
Okay, let's, uh, you know, she, I, and I couldn't tell because it's a little hard to hear her phone there, Desiree. Yeah. But one of the big factors bringing people here to the U.S. is uh, climate change yes. and some extreme weather down there in the Northern Triangle. Exactly. Past year. So, so in just the last year alone, there yeah. were two big hurricanes that hit Guatemala and Honduras. And that is one of the things that pushes people, the push factor that she referred to, that pushes them to leave that area because it is so dangerous for them to stay. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect, I think, is that obviously Republicans intend to use immigration and invent a crisis at the border, whether it's a crisis it's or not. They're they going got. to use it for the midterm 2022 elections. Of course. They're recycling the same old playbook that they used back in the 2018 yeah, of course. as well. And so who says Republicans don't like to recycle? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't even sure I wanted to cover the issue at all uh, when we uh, decided to book Sarah over the weekend because I, I, I fear it just privileges the lie. Yeah, but, in a way, yes. But, you know, the lie is not going away. And the media, once again, they seem to be taking their cues from their assignment editor, which is the Republican Party, apparently, to describe this as a crisis at the border. McCarthy's ridiculous, Kevin McCarthy's ridiculous language that he went down to the board. No, I'm not going to play that because it would privilege the lie. It, right. It's, it's, it's just you know, absurd. That's just one example. But we're seeing a lot of it now because the Republicans, basically, they have nothing else. And I just hope and pray that the media play it straight and explain the truth about what is and isn't going on versus playing the, you know, the panic and the crisis card that the GOP wants you to believe is going on. Anyway, uh, meantime, well, to an actual crisis, that would be our climate crisis. That is straight ahead on our latest Green News Report with the delightful Desiree Doyen. Mm -hmm. uh, that's right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, yes. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman <laughs> from bradblog.com. I may have time. Well, we'll see. I was going to say I may have time for a, for a closer today. Okay. But I don't know. Maybe not. Let's get to it first. Our latest Green News report. She is the first Native American to hold a cabinet position in U.S. history. Senate confirms Representative Deb Holland's historic nomination as Interior Secretary. Tonight, growing frustration for tens of thousands in Jackson, Mississippi. Still without clean water one month after winter storm. Democrats turn to crafting massive infrastructure bill with a focus on climate resilience, plus an unexpected switch. February 2021 was the 16th warmest February ever recorded globally. So it wasn't that warm? It was not. That is a switch. All of those twists and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. 
Building roads and bridges and water supply systems and the rest has always been bipartisan, except when they oppose it with the Democratic president, as they did under President Obama, and we had to shrink the package. And you know, shrinking Obama's package is no easy feat. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, uh, where are we starting here today? <laughs> the historic confirmation of Democratic Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico as U.S. Secretary for the Department of the Interior. The U.S. Senate confirmed her appointment on Monday by a vote of 51 to 40. Four Republicans voted to confirm Holland, with Alaska Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski casting the deciding vote amid strong pressure from Alaska's tribal communities. Holland is the first Native American in U.S. history to lead any cabinet agency. Her confirmation was greeted with cheers and tears in Indian country. The American Petroleum Institute congratulated Holland, despite literally giving Republicans opposition research, including bogus oil industry-backed studies, <laughs> to defeat Holland's confirmation. Of course they did. In other news, February 2021 was the 16th warmest February ever recorded globally since record-keeping began in the 1880s. That's according to NOAA. And that's thanks in large part to the record winter freeze of Arctic air that enveloped most of the continental U.S. last month and knocked mm. out water and power in 11 states. It was so massive it dragged down the overall global average for February for mm. the first time in more than a decade, even as many other regions of the planet were warmer than average. And the irony here is that it was part of climate change that resulted in the polar vortex sliding off the Arctic down into the U.S. Well, that is an emerging area of science, although there is some disagreement about it. Well, I disagree with the disagreement. Speaking of that record freeze, residents of Jackson, Mississippi, are still struggling without clean drinking water nearly a month after the freeze. Mm. Enough water pressure has returned to the city's systems to flush toilets, but it still cannot be used for bathing, drinking, or cooking, as much of the city is still under boil water notices with no end in sight. Jackson officials say the city's brittle infrastructure, already failing even before the storm, will require hundreds of millions of dollars to repair. Well, as I understand it, help may be on the way from Joe Biden's relief bill. Yes, it is true. There is a down payment of $100 million for state and local governments to begin repairing their critical infrastructure systems. Also in need of repair, the nation's dams, bridges, and levees. Mm -hmm. U.S. infrastructure got an overall grade of C- in the latest report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers. But the civil engineers gave stormwater infrastructure, dams, and levees a D grade, mm which is especially concerning as heavier precipitation caused by climate change is straining the nation's aging flood control systems. I wish someone would make America's infrastructure great again. The engineer's latest survey estimates it will cost nearly $6 trillion over the next 10 years Whoa. to bring roads, bridges, and airports to a safe and sustainable level. That's about double what governments and the private sector currently spend. Well, we can't afford safe and sustainable airports. And, as you've mentioned, now that President Joe Biden $1.9 trillion COVID economic rescue legislation was passed by congressional Democrats with zero Republican votes. 
Now the Biden administration and Democrats have begun laying the groundwork for another new bill to repair and upgrade the nation's decrepit infrastructure after decades of deferred maintenance have made critical U.S. systems vulnerable to the increasing frequency of extreme weather events that have been intensified by man-made climate change. A new Data for Progress poll has found 67 percent of voters, including 61 percent of Republicans, believe that we need an additional Build Back Better infrastructure package. Only 22 percent of voters were opposed. Finally, some good news. The Biden administration has rescinded the Trump administration's approval of a permit in Arizona that would have allowed global mining giant Rio Tinto to build a huge controversial copper mine on sacred Apache territory known as Oak Flat, which the Trump administration rammed through despite an executive order that had protected the area from mining for more than 50 years. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. See, pennies. Copper. Copper mine. Pennies. I got it. Yes, I got it. Yes, totally get it. All right. Uh, do I have time? All right, very quickly here, because, you know, uh, this is the the one time of the year w- when I uh, actually celebrate the Congress on, in back in 2005 under George W. Bush. The only thing that they did well in all of those years was expanding daylight savings savings time by a month, right? (laughs) Well, now there is a group of bipartisan senators who have reintroduced a bill to make it permanent year-round. It's called the Sunshine Protection Act, and it has my full and complete endorsement. And it should have yours as well, Desi Doyen, and here's why. Senator Ed Markey, um, he notes that extra sunshine in the evenings not only puts a spring in our step and offers the perfect reason to get outside, but it also positively impacts consumer spending and shifts energy consumption. In fact, in 2005, um, a, a study by the Department of Energy found that Extending daylight savings time by just four weeks actually saved about 0.5% in electricity use. Okay. Did you know that? No. Right. Hey, listen, time is a human construct anyway, so might as well make it All right, it well, now you like you're getting it. a little bit deep for 30 <laughs> seconds left in the show. Sorry. Uh, also, by the way, uh, it improves uh, public health, uh, public safety, mental health. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, Journal of JAMA, what is it? Journal of American, American Medical, Medical Association. Yeah, right. JAMA Neurology found evidence that people are at higher risk of heart attack, stroke, and other harmful effects of sleep deprivation around the time of the biannual clock shifts. So all sorts of reasons to do the right thing and make daylight savings time go year round. There you go. Getting out. Leave me alone. Uh, my <laughs> thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Migration Policy Institute, Sarah Pierce, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. I hope it was sunny. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And oh, yes, we survive only on your support. Those of you 
who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you very much. You'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. There'll be pennies.